0: So welcome to the Everything Marketplaces podcast, which is the audio version for our group chats that we have with Marketplace founders and leaders for the Everything Marketplaces community every week. So I'm your host, Mike Williams, or some of you might know me as Yorumi from Social. In today's episode, we have a chat with Spencer Roscoff. So Spencer has some really incredible experience as a co-founder of Marketplaces like Hotwire, Zillow, where he was also the CEO for over 10 years, and more recently, Picasso. So Spencer has also been on the board of notable companies like TripAdvisor and is an active angel investor in over 75 startups. So this is a really incredible chat with Spencer where we got to learn more about his earlier experience building Hotwire, how he initially started Zillow, what some of the biggest challenges and learnings from his time running it as a CEO were, how he's more recently started Picasso, discuss some of the biggest mistakes founders make when building marketplaces in real estate and housing, and we also had a great group Q&A. So really enjoyed this chat, and now you're going to find it a great listen to the end. Now let's get into it. So Spencer, welcome to the uh, group chat. You know this is a real treat to have you uh, join us here today. So I'd like to uh, start off by saying you know huge thanks for taking the time to do so in advance. You know, see so has some real incredible experience building marketplaces that we all know of today, like Zillow. So I'm excited to uh, learn more about it and uh, really dive into things here with you. Before we do, though, I think it might be great if you can uh, start off by sharing your background, though, for uh, those that might not know you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, grew up here in LA, actually. Um, well, I lived in New York till I was 12, and then I moved out here. I went to Harvard-Westlake in High School um, here in LA. Um, and then uh, went to Harvard College, and then started my career in investment banking at Goldman Sachs. Did my time as an investment banker. It wasn't really for me. Happy to talk about that if you want. Uh, but I did two years in banking, and then moved to San Francisco to work at a private equity firm called TPG. And, uh, also private equity wasn't really for me. So first startup was hotwire, which maybe we'll talk about, sold that to Expedia about after about four years, moved up to Seattle to work at Expedia and at Expedia. I ran the hotel business for about a year or two. And then I uh, thought it was time for a change and left to start Zillow. Did that for about 15 years and then retired from Zillow moved back here to LA about four years ago and started 75 and sunny ventures, which is my family office and startup studio and hopefully we'll talk a little bit about that if we have time
0: yeah no, i mean that's uh, such an incredible background and it definitely has so much that we're going to get into you know with with uh with each company but i guess you know kind of going back to the beginning though you know uh, what led you uh, to starting a uh, hot and maybe what were like some of those kind of early days like
1: yeah so i mean i um i started Hotwire. when i was 23 and didn't know anything um and um it was going really well for the first two years so uh 99 to 2001 how was growing we got up to about 200 employees we'd raised about 75 million of venture capital and we were one of the early leaders of online travel and had this huge tailwind at our back from the migration from offline travel to online travel as people were just discovering the internet and starting to book travel online and then 9 11 happened 9 11 happened september 11 2001 and Obviously terrible tragedy for the country. 3000 Americans were killed. Four planes were hijacked, um, started two wars and, um, changed the whole trajectory of the next 25 years for Hotwire, for our little travel startup. It was also pretty terrible and it was terrible for a couple of reasons. Firstly, uh, our customers were stranded. We had tens of thousands of passengers around the world that, um, weren't able to travel because planes were grounded for, I think it was 11 days after 9-11. And secondly, we had tens of millions of refund requests because we sold the non-refundable product and a lot of people were afraid to travel for the next six or 12 months. And so we had a huge problem dealing with, with the core business. And then finally, we had sold tickets to the hijackers, not the September 11th flights, but the September 10th tickets from Bangor, Maine to Boston Logan that put the, um, the, Logan, the Boston cell in position and uh only my co-founder and i knew that the fbi called us the afternoon of september 11th and started asking questions about that we never shared that with the company and i didn't actually start sharing it publicly till a couple of years ago after 20 years had passed uh but i mentioned that because as a founder there was this terrible palpable sense of of guilt and obviously grief but also connection to the 9 11 tragedy that was that just added to the the depths of depression of the at the company and then finally for me personally I was on the flight from Newark to SFO on September 10th, the flight that would end up crashing in the field in Pennsylvania, um, because I spoke at the millennium Hilton on September 9th at a travel conference. And so I was just spared from nine 11 by a day. Um, and the millennium Hilton was, was crushed by one of the twin towers that, that fell on it. So, so it was a tough time. Um, and, um, we had to figure shit out like founders do. and you know what we did was we did what all of you did through COVID, and what many of you did through the financial crisis of 2008 and maybe if some of you are old like me maybe what some of you did through 9 11 which is you you know you manage your company through that crisis in our case we did a layoff we went from about 200 people to 150 people we cut quickly and deeply and uh, with the goal of trying to make it a one and done layoff which which it was fortunately we did our down round, which was a twenty million dollar down round, um, which was really painful. Nowadays we have this great euphemism, which is, oh, it has structure. Um, you know, back then where they hadn't invented that euphemism. Um, back then it just felt, you know, felt really painful and it wiped out most of the common equity of the company. Um, and then most importantly, we we got everybody fired up again and we kind of can reconnected the survivors to the mission and got them reminded them why they were there, provided them what we were there to accomplish. And by two years later, the company was doing well again and we were on our way and we ended up selling for 700 million to Expedia, um, which was great, except for that, that down round that I mentioned, which wiped out most of the common equity, um, made for that exit, uh, not, not as attractive to the founders or the employees, but very attractive to the, to the VCs. Um, at any rate uh so that was 99 to 03 mike and, and um i learned a lot it made me a much better founder for my next couple companies but um you know it was a pretty a pretty uh trial by fire period of my pretty of my founder my founder story
0: yeah i know c- certainly it sounds like it no, definitely some uh, transformative uh, experiences uh as well you know so, so what do you think some of your uh, key learnings were from uh, hotwire and uh, h- maybe how did this shape how you thought about starting zillow
1: biggest learnings were I mean it's a cliche, but like you know, it's all about the team. So like I, I think there's still sort of this myth of of the the brilliant software engineer that's like sitting in a dark room coding by themselves. Like that's not real life. That's not startups. Um, every success, every failure is is about the group of people. So recruit, retain, motivate great people, connect them to a mission, and then great people properly motivated build great products that attract audience to generate revenue, profit and market cap. So it all starts with the people and making sure that you have the right people on the bus at the right time is something that I learned at Hotwire and then I I took to to Zillow and elsewhere because there's just a lot of inertia at companies where people show up every day because they worked at the company yesterday. And so of course they're going to be there today. that's not necessarily what a company needs especially one going through crisis or one going through a scaling period or just any period of volatility up or down and so being really intentional about you know, who's on the bus at different points in time and and how do you motivate them and how do you maintain a sense of mission through those challenging times that's that was the biggest learning from the lot of experience i guess if there were a second one it would also be um you know and this is obviously a marketplace organ marketplace conversation in a marketplace group but um you know, these two-sided marketplace businesses are all about trying to solve a problem for both sides. So what Hotwire did really well was we solved the problem for travelers that were looking for great discounts, but we most importantly solved the problem for the suppliers, the airlines, hotels, and rental car companies that were trying to sell distressed inventory, perishable inventory, right? A hotel room is totally perishable. An airline ticket is totally perishable. The minute the plane takes off, the ticket was worthless, so they, they can't have you know, uh, low occupancy is, is just crushes travel, uh, travel suppliers. And so we created this product of selling distressed inventory behind a brand shield or what they call in the travel industry an opaque uh, or you know, a, a product with opacity, which means that you don't know the name of the hotel. You don't know the name of the airline. You don't know if it's a nonstop or one stop. You don't know the archer time until after you buy it. And that was a really valuable product for airline, hotel, and rental car suppliers and it solved a really important business challenge they have. It's really like an outlet mall. It's like a digital outlet mall. The reason that outlet malls exist is it lets uh clothing brands sell distressed inventory without diluting the brand, without trading down their core customer who is willing to walk into Rodeo Drive and pay full price or go to Neiman Marcus and pay full price, but they have to sell their excess inventory. So they do it through outlet malls. So this is an an online outlet mall and solving that problem for those suppliers was was really valuable and and the that allowed us to create a great product experience for consumers.
0: Glad we got into the uh, marketplace specific one. So, uh, so yeah. So kind of transitioning over to, uh, to Zillow, though, you know, what was the uh, founding story of Zillow? And, uh, you know, maybe what were some of the uh, kind of first steps that you actually took to us uh, started as a marketplace?
1: When it was time to leave Expedia after a year, year and a half, um, I, my co-founders were early Expedia folks and we sat in a room for about three months and tried to come up with a startup idea. I don't know if that's how most startups are, are, are hatched. That's how Zillow was hatched. Um, and like what, what, what is common about most good startup ideas is it's born out of some personal need, some personal challenge. And so at the time we were doing two things personally, all, all, all three of us. And then a fourth and fifth that joined us shortly after also from Expedia. Uh, we were firstly buying homes. And I had just gotten married. I was buying my first house. And, um, we were building mashups of King County, which is the, the County that Seattle is in King County data from the King County website, Google maps data. And then a friend of ours had given us access to MLS data. And so we were kind of like sort of hacking together something that would sort of eventually look a little bit more like Zillow. Um, and, um, We were like, well, this is really illuminating, being able to see all this great data and being able to build spreadsheets with comps and do analysis ourselves like that's empowering. And then we were also doing this other thing, which is we were editing files and family photos on hard drives. So take yourself back here to 2005. Um, There was no cloud. There were no smartphones, but there were these physical hard drives that we all had back then and we had all been working for 15 years or so and had, uh, we had digital cameras and you would take digital photos and they would go onto your hard drive. And so we were like editing and cleaning all these photos and moving them from one machine at home to machine at work, whatever. And, and this other business plan, like what was behind, you know, door B was basically Dropbox and Dropbox didn't exist. Box didn't exist. AWS didn't exist. Azure didn't exist. Um, But the observation was that moving files from one machine to another was sort of a really big problem that consumers have, and there was going to be more and more data. Businesses were going to have this problem, and maybe there was something there. We decided not to do that idea because we thought eventually the internet giants would provide storage for free or near free to get companies and people into their ecosystem. And we were right. I mean, this is AWS. This is Azure. This is Google Cloud. Um, and that it would really be a race to the bottom on pricing because the giants would offer it all for the, at a subsidized rate. We were right about that. We were of course wrong about the companies. We thought it would be like eBay and PayPal and Yahoo. Like we didn't, nobody could foresee Amazon. They were selling books and DVDs at the time. Um, and Google was a search engine and, uh, you know, nobody thought Microsoft would ever enter this, this space. Again, the space didn't even exist. So that's why we didn't choose, um, the, the cloud idea. Um, and we chose the real estate idea. And, um, uh, you know, it was a good one. Certainly.
0: And, uh, and I guess, kind of like in that, you know, in the very beginning, uh, as marketplaces, we all face the kind of the chicken and the egg, right? Or the uh, kind of cold start problem. So, you know, how did you uh, kind of solve for that?
1: Um, we solved for that with the Zestimate. And the Zestimate was this idea that we had. Uh, well, let me back up. So we're like, okay, we should build a real estate product, a real estate website of some sort, or provide information transparency, or empower consumers with access to this information, which is hidden behind secret databases at the county courthouse, in the MLS, you know, in, P- in consumers or, or um, real estate professionals' brains, and we'll provide an information transparency. And then we said, well, okay, what's the most important question that everybody asks about real estate? And the way most websites at the time, this was 2005, there were plenty of real estate websites at the time. Um, the, what The question they were all answering was, what's for sale? Every single one, realtor.com, I mean, every website at the time was answering, what's for sale? And we're like, well, that's that's interesting. But the question that most people ask themselves is not actually what's for sale, it's what's my house worth? And there were lead gen sites at the time that would say, what's my house worth? In fact, House Values is a publicly traded company that would have TV ads that would say, go to housevalues.com and we'll tell you what your house is worth. You go to housevalues.com, you'd enter your address and hit submit. And then it would say, a real estate agent will call you to tell you what your house was worth. So it was lead gen to real estate agents to tell you what your house was worth. And so, um, you know, I still remember we were in a high rise in downtown Seattle. we were looking across at, at Queen Anne, which is a residential neighborhood kind of across, across the lake. And we were like, imagine if you had goggles, like superpowers, like godlike goggles. There was no VR, AR, Oculus, snap spectacles. None of that existed yet. We we're like, what if you could put on these glasses and you could like see a price on every rooftop and you could see all this like you could look into the houses and see on every single house not just the ones that are for sale but every house uh that would be really cool and and voyeuristic and and you know incredible and illuminating and and um and traffic generating and so we said okay to do that we need to figure out what every house is worth that seems really hard and so we called um this guy stan humphreys who ran analytics at expedia and and worked for us at Expedia and we're like hey we finally figure out what we're going to do it's been three months we've been sitting in this conference room you know editing family photos and and like we're going to f- try to figure out what every house in the country is worth you should it's time to leave Expedia and join us and he's like I don't know anything about real estate and we said well neither do we like this isn't about real estate this is a math problem this is a simple well not so simple it's a pretty complicated math problem but it's a math problem it's not a real estate problem and we're going to figure out what every house is worth and he said okay fine so he joined. And then we did a $6 million pre-seed round from the founders, from us. Um, remember that down round I mentioned at Hotwire, when we sold Hotwire for 700 million, I made $1 million and I was the co-founder and, um, with that $1 million, I bought a $700,000 house or $650,000 house or $650,000 down payment on an $800,000 house. And with the other $350,000 that I made from Hotwire. I put it into the pre-seed round at Zillow. So I just, you know, put it all on, you know, all out, you know bet it all on black. Um, and well, Actually, it's, that's a bad metaphor because that would make it sound like there's a 48% chance of success. I bet it all on like double zero um, <laughs> and, and put the 350 into the pre-seed round at Zillow. Um, and we raised 6 million from the rest of us. My co-founders issued 2.5 million. They had more money than I did uh, from their Expedia experience. And then the, the other couple of employees did the rest. And so we did six million pre-seed. We spent a couple of months buying data and building algorithms to try to value every home in the country. And when we launched uh, February 2006, we had 40 million estimates, So that was about half the country with a 14 percent error rate, meaning that every time a home is sold, this estimate was about 14 percent off on average. So, 40 million estimates, 14% error. Fast forward 15 years later, today Zillow has 100 million estimates. So, basically, every home in the country at a 4% error rate, and on homes that are for sale, it's about a 2% error rate. So, this estimate went from 14% wrong to two to 4% wrong over 15 the 15 years that I was CEO. And the way that it did that was through AI and machine learning and computer vision. And we can talk about that if you want, but. You know, fifteen years of just the algorithm improving and us improving it, and it improving itself. Uh, but to answer your question briefly, Mike, the answer on the cold start problem was this estimate: when we launched, we had a million users on day one. We had four million users in month one. That's still the fastest launch of any product, including ChatGPT. They didn't have a million users on day one. Um, faster than Snap, faster than Instagram, faster than WhatsApp. And you know, so so, and and by the way, it took two years to get back to that first month traffic. So a huge spike, four million you use in month one, which is only a three-week month, and then and then it took two years of the grind to get us back to where we were on month one. So I guess we didn't really solve the cold start problem. We had a very hot start, and then it became lukewarm, and it took two years to to get it back to where it was.
0: Yeah, and no, that's uh, that's really cool to hear. You know, go, going back to the early days, since uh, since of course we, we all know Zillow today, and that you know, sense of scale it's out. You know, so we could probably have an entire chat just on uh, Zillow and uh, really diving into things, you know, but could you uh, briefly walk us through, uh, you know, what some of the pivotal moments were for it as a business?
1: Um, Let's see. There were there were so many, I guess uh, one is obviously the launch. I think the next one was when we figured out what the right ad product was going to be. So we had a lot of traffic. We had, you know, 10, 15 million uniques. We then added listings, by the way, people forget this. There were no listings on Zillow homes for sale for the first two years. Oh, six to eight. No listings, just estimates, evaluations, uh, bad square footage, prior sale history, just publicly available data. Plus the assessment, no listings. So we got to the fourth or fifth most visited real estate site. And then we added listings in the financial crisis in 08. Um, so that was an inflection point. And then the next one was when we figured out how to make money. So we had all these different ad products that we were messing around with a display ad, a lead gen ad, et cetera. And the company really took off once we pivoted to mobile and we pivoted to mobile. I still remember, actually I don't remember the year it was probably 2011 maybe. Um, but I remember sitting at my computer watching Steve jobs demo at WWDC demo. Uh, the iPhone had been out for about six months, but he demoed the app store. And he said in about six months. We're going to add apps to this iPhone that, you know, nobody had yet. And at the time the iPhone only had Apple apps. It had mail stocks, weather, uh, you know, and that was basically it. It had no apps. And I remember I stood up from my desk. I ran to my co-founder's desk, you know, 15 people away. I said, we have to pivot the whole company to mobile. Like real estate shopping is the ultimate mobile experience. It's when you're driving around untethered from your desk looking at homes in the field that you want zillow in the power of your hand we should pivot to mobile and and he's like yeah i agree and so by the end of the week we had changed the name of the company literally from zillow.com to zillow like like literally like everywhere officially and then everywhere it's email address and blah 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 uh by the end of the week um we, I had declared that if I was in any product meeting or any meeting of any kind and anyone showed me desktop screenshots before mobile screenshots, I would get up and walk out of the room and the meeting would be over. I only had to do that twice. And after the second time, everyone got the, got the message and they realized that we were a mobile first company. And within like a month we had pivoted like everything to mobile. And, um, then, you know, to show you the dividends that it paid when the iPad launched a year or two later. Apple reached out to us 6 months ahead of time and asked us to build the first real estate iPad app in secret. We had one iPad in a windowless room locked and only 6 people actually I w- I didn't see it. This is actually an interesting story. We only had I think it was 6 or maybe 4 like named people that were allowed to see the iPad and work on building the first iPad app and I so I was like don't bother with me. I don't write code like, yeah, I'm the CEO, but like I don't even want to be on the, you know one of the four. If we only have four, we should choose them wisely. So I never even saw the iPad for those six months. I knew it was in the room, um, but I couldn't see it, and there were no windows in the room. It was in like a utility closet, basically where those four engineers just went in there every day and then like, buzzed in and out of it. Anyway, so we pivoted the company to mobile. That was instrumental. The, la- the-, the next one was um, the ad product. So when we figured out that the mobile app product where you can connect to a real estate agent by text or or voice that worked and how to sell that. And then we shifted to an auction model. Like all of a sudden the monetization took off and, and it became really valuable. And then I guess another milestone was, was buying Trulia, which was a main competitor. And then, um, we did 17 acquisitions over the next five or 10 years. So, uh, anyway, those are a couple, a couple important milestones
0: so i'm I'm glad you' actually uh you know mentioned as far as you know the acquisitions, right later later on with uh, Trulia. So could you maybe share more around that and just kind of like how that uh, I guess kind of fit within the uh, within the strategy of of Zillow?
1: Buying Trulia was really instrumental because um we were the number one side. They were the number two site. and um uh, we paid a couple billion. I think it was an all stock deal, two thirds, one third all stock. So we gave them about two billion dollars of stock in Zillow. But the reason that it was so important was it allowed us to shift the monetization model from a fixed price lead gen business to an auction lead gen business. So, we were basically we always wanted to to be like what Google is in search. And the genius of Google is from a consumer standpoint, the genius of Google is that it's a really good search engine. From the advertising standpoint, the genius of Google is the auction. And um you know when the CPCs for Los Angeles real estate are $4 CPCs. Zillow doesn't get mad at Google. Zillow gets mad at the other competitors that bid the auction up to $4 CPCs. So nobody blames the auctioneer. And so we always wanted to switch our ad model from a fixed price where we were calling the real estate agent saying, sorry, there's a price increase. It's now $100 a month or $120 a month. Or, you know, some we were CPC, CPL, CPA, which all sorts of different business models, but we were always increasing the price. As our traffic grew, and that's a really hard conversation. It drives churn, so we wanted to shift to an auction. Buying truly allowed us to have enough scale and take out a main competitor that allowed us to have create auction dynamics, which is why the Google auction works because they have ninety percent market share in search. Um, we spent ten months arguing with the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, that it wasn't going to create a monopoly. Um, I believe I believed it wasn't gonna a, I still believe it didn't create a monopoly. I, I mean, there's plenty of real estate search engines and play places for real estate agents to advertise. So it's not a monopoly. And that's why eventually the government agreed with us, but it took 10 months and I think 26 trips to Washington and, and, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours under oath. And, um, it was a, you know, it was a complicated transaction to get approved, but it, but when we did, it was, it was instrumental in the company's growth. Actually, there's a good lesson here for you, which is if any of you think that you will ever, um, well, almost no matter what you do, anything that you write in Slack, in text, in WhatsApp, in email, you should assume will eventually be discoverable in a lawsuit, in a antitrust hearing, in a whatever. Um, uh, and, you know, the lawyers call the, the the things that you wish you hadn't written. They call them bad docs. Um, you know, do you have any bad docs? And like we had some bad docs. Uh, we had a, like a binder. It's probably still here somewhere. Actually, it's right there of like thousands and thousands of, of papers of email and Slack messages up. And, and you know, the, under oath in front of the FTC, they'd be like, well, three years ago, there was some, you know, some board meeting or something where you, you know, you talked about how Trulia was a competitor and they had this percent mark, like what everything you write will eventually come out. Um, and, um, there were a couple of things that I, I wish I, it wasn't that bad, but like I, you know, I'd called some of my competitors internally some names and said, you know, people were, you know, some said some bad things about some people, which then I had to apologize for. So that wasn't great. Um, but mostly from a business standpoint, you just want to make sure that you never write anything like, oh, gosh, if we could ever merge with company X, then we would finally have a monopoly and we could charge whatever we want. <laughs> like, don't write that. Um, you'll you'll regret that. I didn't actually I we didn't have anything that that egregious, but that's the type of thing you want to be thoughtful about.
0: And that's a, that's a good tip for uh, for founders here. So you did, uh, you, you also mentioned that, uh, you know, this point as far as, you know, like uh, legal and regulatory, right? And I feel like as, uh, as marketplaces, um, and especially, you know, being early income spaces, you know, you know, disrupting an industry, kind of bringing change, you know, maybe do you have any uh, tips for founders, you know, building and as far as, you know, how they could think about kind of legal and regulatory,
1: I, I, especially if you're in, in a regulated industry, but even if you're not, I think it's really important that you have a good read on, on where regulatory is going in your space. In the case of residential real estate, It's in the midst of a massive, massive change. You've probably read about it. I've been talking about this for two years. Everyone was sort of ignoring me until a month ago, and now everybody is finally aware of it. There's a class action lawsuit underway, which actually was just decided, and the plaintiffs were given 5.2 billion of damages. And it will, once all the dust settles, and the other copycat lawsuits work their way through the system, and the appeals work their way through the system, it will probably result in the US real estate industry structure, completely changing and looking a lot more like Europe and the UK, whereby the buyer's agents commission is decoupled from the listing agents commission. And that has huge implications for every part of the real estate ecosystem. And for for those that were paying attention, this was pretty obvious two years ago. It was obvious to me two years ago that this is where it was going to end up. Um, I frankly wish I. I mean, I'm not involved in Zillow anymore. I have tons of startup investments in and around the space, including a couple of companies that I've incubated. Um, I wish like it's it's very rare, pro- probably the only time in my career where I felt like I, I I felt like I knew something, I knew a secret that nobody else did, but I didn't actually really benefit that much from it. So if you ever have that, you have a strong point of view about the, the future direction of your industry, especially if it's a contrarian point of view. Finding a way to make that advantage you is really it's really important. Um, uh, so yeah, like in the, yeah, I mean, you could obviously go down a rat hole and spend tons and tons of time on the regulatory stuff in, in the case of Zillow, I went to DC almost every quarter, uh, for many, many years. And we had lots of lobbyists and industry experts and stuff that advise us on things. And it was important and useful, not just for the FTC approval of the Trulia deal, but for a whole host of reasons. And I continue to just pay really close attention to regulatory the regulatory environment in the industries that i'm in
0: yeah so could you share a little bit more about you know picasso and maybe what some of those kind of early steps that you took were uh to start it as a marketplace
1: yeah so i started picasso with a fellow zillow exec, and um he's the my co-founder and ceo and i think our top six people are all from zillow and you know the first 20 employees basically came from zillow and picasso is a series c stage company we raised 240 million of equity uh, a couple hundred employees We are um, creating a new product of of co-owned second homes. So we take a luxury second home in Malibu or Aspen or Tahoe or Cabo or London and we fractionalize it and we sell it in units of eight. So you can buy one eighth or two eighths, three eighths, fourths. And then Picasso does the property management for the home and we originate the mortgage. So it's a much better way to own a second home than owning all the second home yourself because you're right sizing your ownership. You're only buying a portion of the home that you're really going to use. It's almost like carpooling, but for second home ownership. Um, uh, we're in 40 markets in four countries. We just crossed about a billion in real estate sales in our third year. Um, lessons learned so far. Um, I mean, like, (laughs) I guess the zero to one sort of finding product market fit you're never really done. Like we found really early product market fit at Picasso, especially during the COVID quarantine when people wanted a second home. And then people went back to work and they didn't need second homes as much. And then we had to sort of find our way again. And then mortgage rates went way up and all of a sudden people said, wait, this is a really discretionary purchase. Um, Actually before mortgage rates went up, interest rates went up and tech went down. And all of a sudden a lot of our customers Felt poor and said, "Well, I don't need a Picasso anymore, or I don't want a you know a million dollar. Yeah, I'm buying a million dollar eighth of an eight million dollar home is better than buying eight million dollars, but maybe I don't need any of that." So as interest rates went up and tech went down, we had to go find a different buyer pool outside of tech. And then as mortgage rates went up, we had to change our value prop again and find a way to convince people that they should buy a, a second home or a portion of a second home at eight eight or nine percent mortgage rates so like we've had three or four different product market fit iterations um we did our you know we we did our layoff we kind of had a lot of the same you know it wasn't quite as dire as the hotwire 911 store I kind of glossed over the Zillow financial crisis story but trust me that 2008 was a difficult time at Zillow as well through the financial crisis and the mortgage meltdown or the real estate meltdown where we had our layoffs and we had our you know the same similar challenges to what hotware had in 911. So by the way I like this is three three for three companies I start 2 years later there's a global catastrophe that my industry travel real estate and then real estate again is right at the center of of you know terrorism financial meltdown uh, mortgage meltdown and then um uh mortgage rate um increased which caused, um, you know, caused a huge slowdown. Um, so it's, i um, very unlucky in that sense, but in each of the three cases I've sort of managed to, to navigate through. So anyway, that's Picasso and, um, we're, we're, we've had a couple great quarters now. So I think we're, you know, we're back on our front foot. So, so I
0: guess is, is it more of a, an asset kind of heavy uh, marketplace or are, are you actually you know buying the home?
1: Or? So it's a good question. Um, I mean, when things go well, it's not asset heavy. We, we take a home, that's on the market or not on the market, we put it under contract and we basically pre-aggregate demand and we sell, sell through it such that at the time of closing, we didn't have to buy it. it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes we uh we have like three eighths or four eighths or five eighths spoken for, and then we we buy the rest and we own the stub for the next couple of months, um, or sometimes the next couple of quarters if things don't work out the way they're supposed to. So it's supposed to be asset light. It's not always asset light, and that's a constant struggle uh, of ours to try to become more asset light by pre-aggregating demand more.
0: So, so you have uh, some awesome uh, experience, of course, in the you know real estate and housing markets with uh, with Zillow and uh, Picasso, you know now and also also investing in them as well. So, you know, so what do you think the uh, some of the biggest mistakes uh, that you see with uh, with founders are that uh, that they make when they're building in kind of real estate and housing?
1: I mean, there are two things that I have been seeing startup pitches, I guess three over and over and over and over again that always try and fail in the real estate space. Um, one is the interior design thing, the take a picture of a room and then swipe, swipe, swipe to change furniture. change furniture. So, so like the, you know, kind of democratizing access to interior design. Um, I've invested in a couple of those Zillow invested in a couple of those, they've all failed over and over and over again. Um, the second one is lowering commissions overall and maybe this is the right time for it because the the industry changes the regulatory changes i mentioned but there have been a zillion startups that have been like i went to buy my first home at 27 and it pissed me off that i had to pay three percent or six percent whatever and i'm going to democratize access to real estate with lower commissions zillow does not do that by the way like zillow actually you know people think zillow is a disruptor zillow's not really a disruptor zillow actually is a leech that sits on top of the commission pool and just sort of siphons off ad budgets away from agents that otherwise would have gone to newspapers. Um, so the, the true disruptors in the real estate space have failed over and over and over again because the cartel is really strong and has made it difficult for commissions to, um, you know, to erode now might be the time perhaps, but I've seen a million startups try and fail. Um, And then, uh, I guess the third one is not really directly in real estate, but it's kind of more in like prop tech broadly speaking, which is, um, the, uh, the, the sort of short term rental, like, um, we're building a business, like we're building a brand on top of Airbnb. So we're property managing hundreds of, of short term rental homes, or we're buying them or we have a prop co opco structure, but basically we're going to be like Hilton hotels, is to the hotel industry we're going to be on top of short-term rentals and um there's a lot of venture capital that's gone into startups there most of those companies have failed i've invested in several of them um so i mean each of those three ideas are good ideas one of the it'll happen eventually but like gosh there's a lot of startup blood on the battlefield from all three of those all three those fields so the three of those ideas yeah, no
0: certainly it's gonna be a re- really helpful for our founders in the uh, community because i know we have a, a, a lot that are building in real estate and housing so so, so you and i could probably go on for uh, quite some time and i want to make sure we uh you know have time for some questions here for, from uh from founders so we're going to get to them in, in a second but you know one of the things that i did want to ask about is you know uh you know when you're at this sense of kind of scale such as like a zillow is you know how do you think about um defensibility um for marketplaces wearing that sense of scale
1: defensibility it comes from a network effect. This this is this is kind of interesting. Like Zillow, none of the real estate websites have network effects. So if a listing on Zillow is viewed a hundred times or a thousand times or ten thousand times, it has the same quality. In fact, that same exact listing is on Redfin and Realtor.com and on Joe the real estate agent's website and compass website and is viewed, you know, five times, 10 times. And Zillow doesn't actually have any network effects. So its moat is its brand and, and, um, that's what keeps the traffic coming back. And that, and that is powerful brand can be a powerful moat, but it's not as powerful as the Uber network effect of a two sided marketplace that a huge number of riders, means it attracts a lot of drivers, which lowers the rate and lowers the wait time. And that improves the user experience in classic two sided marketplace. Zillow doesn't actually have that. Um, so. I would argue it it is you know more at risk of of um yeah well it it has a it has a smaller mode I guess because its mode really is brand um and in that sense it's not a traditional two sided marketplace mode yeah what what, what about Picasso do, do you think Picasso uh... um uh, is trying to build a mode and network effect around a community of co owners so we've just built out a swapping product for example like I own a Picasso in Malibu. I own one eighth of it, which is six weeks a year. In the Picasso app, I can become friends with other friends of mine that own Picasso's. And I can, if I'm not going to use all six of my weeks, I can give up a week or two time in my Picasso to stay in one of their Picasso's. So right now we have thousands of owners. It's pretty cool. I know, I know 12 owners and one has a Picasso in Cabo and one has one in London and one has one in Aspen and et cetera. Eventually, hopefully we'll have hundreds of thousands of Picasso owners and that will be a very strong network effect. Um, we're not quite there yet. We're still, you know, relatively new, but that is, you know, that is one way that we're trying to build a network effect. We also have a network effect around brand. Um, but obviously that's not as strong a brand as Zillow, but in the luxury co ownership space, it's really the only brand. Um, and, um, uh, you know, but but again, I think brand moats are are really relatively weak as compared to true network effect moats.
0: Cool. so we're gonna get into uh, questions here. Hey, uh, hey, Matt, do you uh, do you want to come on?
1: So my my question is, and uh, I know you know this super well. Real estate agents and brokers uh, have always had a love hate re- relationship with Zillow and Trulia, um, especially since day one, especially because of this estimate or key strategies you know, early on, especially like pre IPO that helps Zillow turn or diffuse these uh, kind of real estate detractors from agents and brokers, uh, in the community in order to mitigate risks of losing supply. It's a constant game of like carrot and stick, I guess. So, um, uh, I, I think. Every one of these marketplaces has challenges on the supply side, um, you know if you're uber you're like begging drivers to participate and then you're fighting with them and then you're kind of you know carrot and sticking them and then you're giving them economic incentives and then you're saying actually if you don't do this we'll never we won't let you drive anymore so it's like the constant you're like training a you know training a pet um and showing them love and then showing them discipline kind of you know back and forth and and sir so that's how zillow sort of tries to handle it um and um uh you know a lot of the lessons that a, a lot of the um when i was running zillow i was probably more more carrot than stick with on this issue and i learned that from expedia and hotwire where one of the main reasons that expedia bought hotwire was the industry loved us the hotel industry loved hotwire because as i described it it was it really solved a huge problem for the travel industry and the industry hated expedia because Expedia was arrogant and Expedia also extracted huge rents. They, they were just aggressive on on commission and they didn't really solve a business problem. They just, you know, the, the the travel industry would have sold through an offline travel agent paid them a 10% commission. And now they're selling through Expedia and paying them a 15 to 20% commission. So how, you know, how is this better? Um, so, uh, I, I learned the importance of of embracing the industry. So we had a when I was running Zillow, we had a real, and I think you probably remember this, a real um, active strategy around engagement with the industry, going to conferences, doing webinars, creating advisory boards, um, you know, bestowing awards on industry people, uh, kissing ass, and um, I did it a lot, and I did it well. And I had a whole big team that did it well, too. (laughs) Um, And. You know, and so anyway, so every marketplace has to figure this out for themselves, but it's some combination of carrot and stick. And generally, I, I lean towards carrot.
0: Hey Spencer, I, I actually had a question that was added to the uh, doc that I wanted to ask uh, for someone. Um, but you know, that's with uh, w- with investing in marketplaces now. You know, what what are some uh, what are some of the things that you look for for in marketplaces, and maybe even kind of like uh, you know specific kind of metrics and benchmarks?
1: Um, I look for big TAM, low NPS. So big total addressable market, low NPS, meaning everybody's kind of pissed off about the stuff they don't like. You know, what they, they don't like how the industry works. So you're solving a real consumer problem obviously i like things that try to solve things for the consumer and the and the professional on both sides um uh i like to see things where the founder has a direct connection to the problem like the person the founding team really cares deeply about it they're not so motivated by money or by uh some like mba type um analysis that drove them you know like i studied 27 different marketplace ideas and selected this one because it has the best industry dynamics and it's like You know, no, like I want somebody who's like, I dream about this problem. I spent the last five years thinking about it because my mom is a whatever, or my dad is a whatever, or I grew up in this industry and I've always wanted to, you know, whatever. I saw my parents and grandparents run a restaurant and it was always hard for them to buy supplies. And so now I'm building this two sided marketplace with restaurant supplies on one side and restaurants on the other, because like I was put on this earth to you know, to help restaurants and small business owners, da 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 Like, that's better than, like, I learned at Business School that this would be a good marketplace to create.
0: Hey, Christian, do you uh, want to jump on?
1: Yeah. Hi, thanks. Um, and really appreciate the time here, Spencer. Um, so, I'm an SEO by background. Um, and the question that's always been on my mind is why do companies so poorly invest in it? And I've got my own speculation about that. And I think it's to do with ROI and incremental investment per quarter. Apologies, it's a very niche question. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I love the question. Uh, I just, I, I just spent half hour on this topic yesterday at Picasso where I said to my co-founder and CEO, I said, you know, it's been a couple months since uh, like I've heard anybody say SEO, like I sit in these meetings. I'm in exec meetings. I'm not day to day. I'm chair and founder, but nobody's talking about SEO. And I literally just talked to him about this yesterday and, um, another startup this morning uh, same conversation. So it's a great question. Um, uh, Zillow was good at SEO kind of like B plus like, yeah, we sort of knew it was important, but once we bought Trulia, we were like, holy shit. Now I get it. And truly a total credit to Pete and Sami, co-founders of Trulia, especially Pete, Pete, the, the CEO and founder was basically like the the PM for SEO at Trulia. He is personally one of the world's leading experts on SEO and invested and, and like learned everything. And he's learned and was, it built it into the whole culture of the company. Um, I'll tell you why companies don't invest enough in SEO. It's partly what you said, which is it takes a year or two to see results, but it's mostly that it's just, um, it's, it's not sexy, fun work. Like building new features is much sexier and shipping a new, you know, a new shiny feature versus building a link, you know, breadcrumbs and a link tree and new landing pages and better perf. I mean, like, like, let's face it, all that stuff is kind of boring. I know it's interesting to you, but like, it's not, you know, and, and actually we did a thing at Zillow when we, when we, after we bought Trulia, I was like, okay, we got to get serious about SEO across the Zillow brand, not just Trulia brand. Um, we were a persona-driven company, so we had Beth the buyer, Susan the seller, Harriet, the homeowner, Alan the agent, Larry the lender, Bob the builder. So you walk around Zillow, and there are posters to this day. Well, it's mostly remote now, but you know, in the empty office space with like tumbleweeds rolling through, there there are posters on the walls of these personas. And we created a new persona, which was Googlebot, and we made it a little picture, like a Androidy kind of you know Google face thing, and. We put these little like um, index card things behind everyone's desk that was like, I am Googlebot, you are designing for me, like blah, blah, blah. And it was like, it was it took six months to convince the product teams that it was like that building for Googlebot was was good. Like that was, that was the way to get your, if you're an engineer, you're a PM, you're a designer, you want your code and your feature to be viewed by many tens of millions more people then you need better SEO and um, and and you should care about this stuff. And it was it required a huge, a heavy lift culturally to get people serious about it. And even at Picasso, starting from scratch again, you know, in 20 whatever, 2020, uh, with a team from Zillow. And I still would give us like a B plus, maybe A minus in terms of like really caring about SEO and building it into the inner work of the company. So it's hard. But boy, does it, boy is it boy is that important thanks uh very valid and appreciate it
0: hey uh, Dimitri, do you, uh, do you want
1: to come on so my question is about um why don't we see auctions uh as a price discovery mechanism in the U.S residential real estate kind of outside of like kind of the foreclosure or maybe the luxury part of the market seem commonly used abroad and it seems like the ideal solution for kind of idiosyncratic inventory markets like the Bay area where ML doesn't work. It's well. a great question. And actually, this is where Zillow started. This is like a little known fact deep in the vault. Um, what, in that period of time, when we're like, okay, we should figure out whatever else is worth. We're like, well, actually, the best way for what else is worth is to run an auction. Maybe we should create an auction website. And I don't think, I almost never talk about this publicly, but you could maybe find something on the web somewhere about it. I probably mentioned on a podcast or something. HomeAuctionWeb.com was the very first version of Zillow, which we launched with that that URL intentionally as a brand that nobody would pay attention to. And we auctioned one house, and um, you know we read it was a Seattle house. We readied the home for sale. We put the pictures online. We put it in the MLS. Blah blah blah. And the original 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 business plan for Zillow was to be an online brokerage that sold through auctions. We we listened to all these Australian auctions online on like online radio, and then streaming and and really went deep on different auction models in australia which where most homes are auctioned in australia as it sounds like you know um And we concluded at the end of that Three-month kind of diversion that the u.s. Just isn't ready for auctions that the the stigma Is that there was some drug deal that went down on the house or it's a foreclosure or something weird is wrong with it and while it kind of makes sense intellectually uh, for price discovery and buyers and sellers meeting in the middle and blah 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 all the reasons why it academically makes sense. Like it's just we're just not there culturally and it is what it is. And this new company at the time with no traffic wasn't going to move the needle. You know, maybe if today is a little launched auction product, you know, could maybe it get traction. Maybe, but like it's just cultural stigma is kind of why we moved away from the idea. But we we spent months thinking about it. Thank you so we're almost out of time here spencer but wow this is uh,
0: such a such a great chat to uh you know d- dive into some of your uh, awesome experience and uh you know in- insights and uh and also learnings too so we appreciate you know taking the time to uh, join us here today you know i actually had a uh, one last question for you before we uh, wrap things up though and that's if uh you know if you could go right back to before you started uh, hotwire and entered the uh, world of marketplaces you know what would you i uh, tell yourself about uh marketplaces specifically
1: well i'd read i mean it sounds like you guys have talked about but i'd read andrew shen's book which is probably behind me um i think cold star problem is is a is a genius work <laughs> um it's it it's, it's much more articulate than i ever could um all of these topics so so that's a that's a, a gold mine um uh i mean you know i don't know i i would i would just try to solve a problem that i was really passionate about i mean that's one thing that down each of these startup experiences especially Picasso like I truly am passionate about second home ownership I've owned a second home for the last 15 years I was fortunate enough to grow up in a household where my parents owned a second home and it was life-changing it just like the relationship with my parents and my siblings and friends and family has been enriched endlessly through second home ownership and so I truly believe in the importance and the value of second home ownership and I just really want to try to make it more accessible to more people um, so I'm totally connected to that mission of creating that marketplace. Um, I also think, as I mentioned, there are a lot of pseudo marketplaces that are not really marketplaces like that are kind of more like classified businesses. And Zillow is a really good example, um, that are maybe more disruptable than one might think. So, um, you know, true marketplace has moat has participants on both sides and moat. um, not all big brands have moats.
0: Yeah. Those, those are great last tips and things things that we, we're always discussing here as well. So, and then the last but not least, you know, time for a quick plug, where can we keep up with you
1: at? Um, I'm on all the socials. <laughs> um, but my website is 75 and That's my family office that invests in startups. Um, and then, um, uh, dot LA and, um, you know, LinkedIn, I publish a lot on LinkedIn or on dot LA. Um, so those of you that live in L.A., you should subscribe to dot L.A., D.O.T. period L.A., which um, publishes news and information on the funding environment and startups here in L.A. tech.
0: Awesome. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining in. the Great questions, too. So thanks for listening to this episode and making it all the way to the end. As mentioned, our podcast is the audio version of our virtual group chats that we do for the Everything Marketplace's community with Marketplace founders and leaders every week. If you're a Marketplace founder or team, you can check out the community and request to join us at everythingmarketplaces.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please also leave us a review. You can also find the video versions for all of our group chats over on our YouTube by simply searching Everything Marketplaces. See you next time.